Hey there, this is Brian Zond, and welcome to my sermon podcast. I'm glad that you're interested in the sermons that I preach here at Word of Life Church in St. Joseph, Missouri. And if you ever feel inclined to help us by supporting us financially, you can do that at our website, wolc.com. Thank you. Today we continue our series, which we began last week, entitled Made Fearfully and Wonderfully. This series is centered and inspired by Psalm 139, which reads like this. For you formed me in my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My friends, you are fashioned like an artisan working with their hands to create the finest of products. You know, there's this movement of artisan-made products in our day today, getting back to handcrafted things. When an artisan crafts a product, at times that product, that everyday item, actually becomes a work of art. And I'd like to say this to you this morning. My friend, you are a work of art crafted by the greatest artisan of all time. You are made intimately, intentionally, specifically, fearfully, and wonderfully. That's good news. Amen? Maybe some of you needed to come to church this morning just to hear that. And the God that created you, we learned last week from Pastor Derek, also loves you. And because he loves you, he cares for you and cares about you. The God who created you cares about your soul, your well-being. And caring about your soul, God in Christ comes to be God with us, Emmanuel. And he joins us that he might bring about well-being for your soul. That he might, in a way, save your soul. Jesus says this in John 10.10. He says, The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come that they could have life. Yes, have it full to overflowing. Jesus came that we might have life full to overflowing. Essentially, fulfillment, right? I personally, if you know anything about the Enneagram, I am, I don't like to call myself a number. I feel like, I always remember this thing that Pastor Brian said, uh, the, the lamb calls you by name, he doesn't give you another. The beast deals in numbers, the lamb deals in names. But anyway, that doesn't mean the Enneagram is, you know, a part of the beast by any means, because I found it to be an incredibly helpful tool for me to become self-aware and grow in maturity and in Christ. Now, As uh, someone who knows about the Enneagram, I'll share with you that I, this is how I like to say it, I resonate or I relate with the attributes of a type 7. So those things that they talk about 7s doing, that is reading my mail every day. So I, uh, as they say in Enneagram 7, I have FOMO. It's true. Anyone know what FOMO is? It's not a weird Asian noodle dish. Yeah, I got some FOMO friends in the back. Uh, FOMO, the fear of missing out, right? The fear that I might come to the end of my life and have nothing to show for or 
have missed something that life had to offer, that I would find myself empty and unfulfilled. I personally struggle with this idea of fulfillment, and I have grown, thank God, I am, I am, my wife can attest to this, Megan can attest to this, that when we first got married, every night of the week, I, if somebody was doing something somewhere, I needed to be there. And Megan is not that way, and so the first year of our marriage or so, I spent every night, she would sometimes be with me and sometimes not, but I was somewhere doing something with someone every single night. FOMO, the fear of missing out. I think this is not just specific to me or Enneagram type sevens. I think that this is true for many of us, actually, that we have a fear of missing out in life, that we seek fulfillment in life, that at the end of our life, our hope is that we would have lived life full to overflowing. But it's interesting. Have you ever noticed the irony of fulfillment? The irony of fulfillment, we have these moments when we feel fulfilled in life, but then they seem fleeting, right? It's here one moment and gone the next. Anybody ever experienced this with a a new, my phone's on the front pew, a new iPhone, right? The iPhone 11 just came out, three cameras, whoa, right? (laughs) Anyway, so they added another camera to the iPhone, Uh, But it stirs in us this desire, like, I need that new iPhone. I actually looked up, all right, what's it going to cost me to get the new iPhone? And then found out my phone was cracked. And then that went on a whole journey of having to get my own phone fixed. So now I have a new phone, but it's the old model. So it didn't have that sense of fulfillment that getting a new phone gives you. Have you ever noticed that? You get a new phone. Maybe it's a new computer, a new car. Oh, that new car smell. Don't rent cars. It just stirs in you jealousy, envy, and covetousness. Have you ever noticed that? You rent a new car and you're like, man, my car is not so great. (laughs) I need a new car, right? And so maybe we purchase something new. For me at times, it's new shoes and we get this feeling of fulfillment until the new iPhone comes out. And then you're like, well, dang, now I got the old iPhone. And that fulfillment is now fleeting, right? It's gone. And we have a desire again for more. This vicious cycle of unsatiated desire that creates in us dissatisfied souls and discontent hearts, I like to call the madness of more. The madness of more. I will finally be happy. I'll have made it. I'll be content when fill in the blank. And the blank is usually filled in with something I don't currently have or more of something that I do have but I feel is not enough, right? I'll be happy when. And that may be material things, that may be experiences, that may be status, success, children, right? When I have X amount of kids, then I'll be happy. (laughs) Maybe that's your cup of tea. (laughs) I currently have a (laughs) two-year-old. Enough said. But this drive for more, this madness of more, it's a staple of our 21st century culture, right? I think we all live in this. We're just born into it. It's, in a way, it's kind of woven into the American dream, right? That we would go for it, that, that we would strive and that we would work hard. And, and, and so it's kind of a part of who we are. But I believe that this drive for more can at times capture us and drive us mad, And I think the madness of more at times, and many times, 
causes us to seek fulfillment whenever, wherever, with whatever we can, often to our own demise. And we end up with this madness of more stealing our happiness, killing our joy, and destroying our souls. I think we all feel this. And there's a sense at at large that more is not always better. Bigger is not always better, right? I think this is where we get the the tiny house movement. Anybody love tiny houses? Do you watch that on HGTV or Netflix? I got people applauding. I got more applause for tiny houses than Jesus this morning. No, I'm just kidding. Tiny houses. Have you seen this? It's like, for some people, you look at that and you're like, that is a dream come true. I am so tired of maintaining all my stuff, right? Cleaning my big house. Have you ever noticed the more room you have to store stuff, magically you attain more stuff to store? It's just this thing that happens in our culture. And so people are recognizing this. And this is not just old people who are... Old people? That was really disrespectful. Uh, Elderly people... (laughs) who are, good Lord, I repent, all right, Uh, we'll confess our sins later and come to the table and find forgiveness, and I'll be with you. Uh, This is not just people who are growing old and retiring and downsizing, that's kind of common. These are like people across all demographics, and, and they're saying that I am tired of the bigness, I'm tired of maintaining all of the stuff, I'm tired of getting enslaved to my stuff, I want to be free. So they're downsizing, and they're saying, what is really specifically important to me? What are my priorities in life? And my house, and all the stuff in it, is not on the top of their list. And so they're trying to live in the smallest spaces they can to provide more space in their life for things that they love, like travel, relationships, adventure. And so um, if you pull that picture back up, I think this is a great representation of what they're seeking. You have a house that's made mostly of glass. It's small. And this this is one of my favorite types of tiny homes because I've been really tempted to live in a tiny house. And then I woke up um, and realized it's not, it's not going to work for us. But if I did, it would be like this, because I feel like this represents the desire of people in our culture who have been, uh, they're, they're just worn out by the madness of more. And they say, I want to live in a space where my life is not enslaved and contained by my stuff and maintaining my stuff, but rather I'd like to turn my life inside out and live in such a way where I've got a place to lay my head, a place to fill my stomach with food, but the rest of my life is open to the beauty of the world around me. I want to live a generous life, an open life, a big life, right? The world around us is so much bigger than we could ever contain in a structure or a home. Anyway, I just found that that's a really great picture for us this morning as we move forward. This madness of more is not a part of the kingdom of heaven which Jesus proclaims to us. It's just not. Rather, this madness of more is and always has been the mantra of empire. This is what empires do. They say we need more territory, we need more power, we need more weapons, we need more money, we need more influence, we need more bricks. More, 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 more. More is the mantra of empire. And empires operate throughout history in this madness of more because they have a paradigm or a a perspective in life 
of scarcity, right? They live from a place of scarcity where they believe, empire believes, there is not enough to go around for everyone. There's just not enough to go around for everyone. So that drives me to act in a way that I've got to to hoard and acquire as much as I can for me and mine because there's not enough to go around for everyone. So I live my life working to add more and more to my store, to my my people, my nation, whatever the empire is, and they hoard, and now I've got all this stuff. I've got enough, but there's not enough for everyone everywhere, and so people may try to come and take what I've gained, so now I've got to work more to protect what I have from others. See how this operates out of a scarcity mentality that there's not enough to go around, but I don't believe that we serve a God of scarcity, amen? We serve a God of abundance, We serve a God of plenty. We serve a God of more than enough. And as we serve the God of abundance, he creates in us rather a perspective, a paradigm in life of abundance where we don't operate from this maddening position of there's not enough to go around for everyone, so we close ourselves off and hoard things in for ourselves, keeping others out. But rather as a cruciform people, as we we look like Jesus on the cross, we live open lives of generosity saying, we serve a God of more than enough. There is more than enough for what we need. We don't have to be afraid. We don't have to be anxious. This is an abundance mentality. Empire, in its endless pursuit of more, is therefore always positioning itself against the God of plenty, the God of abundance. The most influential story of empire in the Bible for the people of Israel and I think for Christians is found at the very beginning of our Bible, the second book of the Bible, the book of Exodus. This Exodus narrative, I think, is the most formative and influential story of empire positioning itself against God. And this story is most famous, I think, for its miracle of the parting of the Red Sea, but I'd like to back up this morning. I'd like to go back and start with Joseph. You know about Joseph and the coat of many colors? Joseph was a boy, son of a loving father. His father loved him very much. In fact, his father favored him. But he was also the brother to some siblings who despised him. And they, operating in this scarcity mentality, afraid that there wasn't enough to go around for everyone, they become jealous of Joseph and the favor that he received from his father with his coat of many colors. So what do they do? They bind him, throw him in a pit, and sell him into slavery, right? Through a long line of events, Joseph ends up in Egypt, in the empire of Egypt, and serving as the second most powerful man in all of Egypt, just under Pharaoh, right? We know he goes through Potiphar's house to jail, then through God's provision and favor. A miracle happens with dreams that he interprets for Pharaoh, and Pharaoh elevates him to manage all of Egypt. And Pharaoh just gets to sit back and chill. So Joseph has all this power, and Joseph... Um, I'm cutting a very long story short for you this morning. Joseph has a time where his, uh, where his nation comes into a time of famine and drought, and he's managing this, and he manages with wisdom from God 
And so Joseph is sitting with plenty um, in their storehouses, and uh, the famine hits the land all around so that his father Jacob, also known as Israel, sends his sons, Joseph's brothers, to come into Egypt and ask for provision, right? They need some food. They didn't realize that they would come and meet their brother Joseph, and I won't tell you the whole story, but some reconciliation happens because Joseph is operating out of God's abundance, both in material things, but also in forgiveness and reconciliation, so that Joseph obviously provides for his brothers, which honestly were his enemies who tried to rid themselves of Joseph. And Joseph provides in generosity what they need. Not only what they need, but invites them in hospitality. You see the the mentality of abundance here operating? Invites them in hospitality to come and live within the, the abundance of the Egyptian empire. And this is all good. We are seeing God at work. And so Joseph brings in his whole family. At the time, it's about 70, right? There's an That's an extended family, aunts and uncles, cousins, second cousins, everyone and anyone. They come and live in the land of Egypt. And by the end of our story, they are going to grow from their little extended family of 70 into two to three million, right? This is a whole nation that develops here as they live in the land of Egypt. And we pick up the story in Exodus chapter 1. It starts by introducing the fact that a new king of Egypt arises who did not know Joseph. And he says to his people, look, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them. And so therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. The people of Israel built for Pharaoh's storehouses, Pithom and Ramses. And the more the people of Israel were oppressed by Pharaoh and the Egyptians the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad until the people of Israel despised the people, until the people of Egypt despised the people of Israel. And it says that they took the children of Israel and made them serve with rigor. And the people of Israel were in Egypt for 430 years. 430 years of living with the burden of enslaved labor. I don't know how long you felt the burden of labor, this maintaining of all of our stuff in life, but the people of God have been in this place before. And so time goes on and Pharaoh sees that the more that he places upon the people of Israel, the more they multiply and grow. And in his fear and his scarcity mentality, he freaks out and it drives him to mad action, craziness. And he decrees, he makes a decree and he says, every male child that's born to the people of Israel, you are to kill when you deliver the baby. Mass murder. Why? Because he's scared there's not enough to go around. And so in the midst of this, we know Moses is born and there's some midwives that save him and send him down a river and he grows up in the house of Pharaoh as, because Pharaoh's daughter finds him on the river's edge. Can't, oh, and I mean, when you're looking at a baby, like you can't do harm to a baby, right? So Moses is a, is a child of Israel, but yet he's raised in the house of Pharaoh until one day he goes out and sees his brothers of Israel being, uh, being trampled down upon, beaten by a guard, and he actually lashes out in uh, vengeance as 
He has a temper and he kills the guard, buries him in the sand, thinks nobody saw. Well, somebody saw, word got back to Pharaoh. Pharaoh gets mad, says, I'm going to kill Moses. So Moses tucks tail and runs, right? And he finds himself out in the wilderness all alone. He finds a man named Jethro, marries one of his daughters, is tending flocks in the wilderness as a shepherd. He goes from Pharaoh's house out to the wilderness. Now he's just a shepherd. And there in this place of wilderness, Moses encounters God. God in the burning bush, you know this, it's a famous story. And God calls him to be his agent of freedom for the people of Israel. He says, Moses, I'm sending you to Pharaoh and I want you to tell Pharaoh, the most mighty man in all the land, to let my people go, right? And Moses comes up with a myriad of excuses. Did you know at this time Moses is 80 years old? It's true. God calls Moses at 80 years old. There might be some 80-year-olds in the house tonight who think that you're done, right? You're like, I'm just on cruise control at this point. Let me tell you, God is not done with you. There may be something he's calling you to soon that confronts the empire of our age where he's calling you to be his agent in a place to set some people free and speak life to people and say to the powers that be, let my people go. I just want to say that to you, that God is not done with you yet. Amen? And so Moses is given the support of his brother Aaron by God and Moses at 80 and Aaron at 83 go to Pharaoh. They confront the powers that be and they say, Pharaoh, the God of Israel, the God I am says, let my people go that they may go out into the wilderness and worship me. And Pharaoh reacts how most men of pride and ego and power react and say, who is this God to me? I'm not going to let you go. In fact, if you've got enough time to go out and play revival in the wilderness for three days, right, then you've got enough time to do more work. There's no time to worship. There's only time to work. And he puts upon them heavier burdens. He takes away their straw and he says, more bricks, more bricks, more bricks. And now you've got to go collect your stubble as well. And this is what Pharaoh does. He burdens the people with more, 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 more. They are enslaved to this vicious cycle of more in the empire of Egypt. And you know how the story goes. God says, okay. And Pharaoh reaps what he sows in a myriad of plagues until that one plague he cannot bear hits Egypt. And he says, please go. The people cry out. The people of Israel, they have brought destruction upon our land and our, our families send them away. And so Pharaoh sends the people of Israel away. God delivers his people by the strength of his hand from Pharaoh. And as the people of Israel travel through the wilderness, God meets Moses again to give him the law, the Ten Commandments, right? I'm giving you like the whole Old Testament here in 15 minutes. So he gives them the law, the Ten Commandments. This is, this is the law that he gives the people of God so that they might be formed differently than the values of Egypt and empire into a people who would be a people who worship and do justice. A people who are formed to live in right relation to God and one another. And right in the middle of these commandments, right in the center of this law, is this peculiar command that's unique to Israel to keep the Sabbath day holy. God calls the people of Israel out of their enslaved madness of more in the empire of Egypt into a life of rest and trust. Out of a life of striving and heavy burdens into a, a life of rest and ease and trust. 
This is what the Sabbath is. No, work is good. Work is a part of God's good creation, right? He's given us a vocation in creation. He calls it good. But striving, this madness of more, is not God-ordained because God says work for six days. Work hard. Work towards human flourishing. Work is good. But there comes to a place where you're at the end of yourself. For the, for the sake of your soul, for your well-being, I've crafted you and designed you in such a way that you need rest. So on the seventh day, God leads the way in creation, and after six days of doing his creative work in the universe, God rests, and he calls his people to do the same, made in his image. We are called to work hard and to rest fully, trusting God to make up the rest. Whatever is lacking... We trust God to fill in the gap. Wherever we are weak, we trust that God will be strong. Wherever we are insufficient, we trust God in his sufficiency for our lives. This is what God does in the people of Israel through the Exodus story. In liberating them from the empirical madness of more, he gives them a command of limitations. God as king doesn't force unlimited, unbearable burdens upon his people, but rather places healthy boundaries and limits on his people for the well-being of his people. This is what God does. Trust is what the people of Israel were going to have to learn in their 40 years of the wilderness. At times, they would come to a place of struggle and suffering in the wilderness, and they would look back upon their time enslaved in Egypt and say, oh, how good it was. Look how much stuff we had. We had food in our bellies. And they forget the burden that comes with the madness of more. And they would run out of water or food and think, well, God's just abandoned us, and God is just waiting to provide, teaching them to trust. Learning to trust will require of us learning to remember what God has done in the past and foster an attitude of gratitude. We are called to be a thankful people, and when we learn to be thankful for all that God has done, we will then be in a position to trust him for all that he is going to do. The two go hand in hand, thanksgiving and trust. And so God forms that in the people of Israel. And we too, like the people of Israel, become enslaved at times to the busyness of maintaining all of our stuff. And Jesus comes and he speaks to the systems around us that enslave us. And he says, as Moses did to Pharaoh, let my people go. And he comes to us personally and he says these words out of Matthew eleven twenty eight: 28. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. Some of you need to hear that this morning. You're weary and heavy laden with this drive and this striving trying to prove something in life. And Jesus this morning just says, come to me. You're heavy, you're, you're weary, you're broken, you're enslaved. I want to set you free to rest in me. He goes on to say, walk with me, work with me, watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. Amen. Philippians 4, 6 will go on to commend us. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with 
thanksgiving, let your request be known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. I was reminded of this, mowing the grass one day, listening to an audiobook called Falling Upward. I'm coming in for a landing this morning. Some closing thoughts I'd like to share with you. One from this book by Richard Rohr. And if you're at the, this midpoint of life where you feel that you've found yourself enslaved in the system of more, but you're wanting to be liberated, you're desiring something else, you're questioning fulfillment in life, this is an excellent book for you. You feel like the world system's failed you. Maybe you've fallen hard in life. You're living in shambles and you don't know what to do. I, I would really recommend this book, Falling Upward. And, and Richard shares this with us. He says, your concern is not so much to have what you love anymore. Oh, I love Camaros. I want to have one, right? I love Chick-fil-A. I just got to have as much as I can get. No. But I love that big house. I just have to have it. I love that new car. I got to have it. Your concern is not so much to have what you love anymore, but as you grow and mature as a people of trust in God, you will learn to love what you have right now, fostering that attitude of gratitude, learning to be a people of thanksgiving, and with that will come peace. With that will come an openness in life. With that will come generosity for others. With that will come a place of trust for the future things that are uncertain. I was reminded again um, running, listening to another audiobook right out here in the parking lot. It hit me again after I heard this. You know, I'm struggling. I struggle with this. Can I tell you that this morning? I struggle with this. And I was running out here in the parking lot and I was listening to Jaber Crow by Wendell Berry and there's two um, characters here, Athy and his son-in-law, Troy. And this is what Athy says in the book. He says, wherever I look, I want to see more than I need. Wherever I look in life, I want to see more than I need. There's more than I need. There's more than enough, more than enough. He's the older, wiser gentleman in the story, and the younger gentleman who's foolish, he says, wherever I see, I want. That desire that will never be satisfied. I want to be a person that goes throughout life, and wherever I look, I see more than enough. More than enough for everyone. Would you stand on your feet this morning? I'm sharing with you what God is working in me. Is that okay? Uh, and in hopes that this may be helpful for some of you this morning. In growing in awareness and trying to mature in Christ, I get these any thoughts of the day every day in my email. And I look back, and in the last two years, I've gotten this specific thought. It's like a little thought to think about in my email six times in the last two years. So it's like more than any other thought that I get in my email sent to me. And this is what it says. I now affirm that there will be enough for me of whatever I need. See that abundance mentality? I now affirm that there will be enough for me of whatever I need. Reminded of this all the time. Not just through books like Falling Upward or Jaber Crow or through my any thought of the day, but I'm reminded of this every time I come to the table of the Lord here on Sunday morning. 
table of the Lord represents a place of abundance, a place of provision, a place of plenty. This morning, as we gather around this table, there is more than enough for everyone. Amen? And the beautiful thing about the table of Christ is that there's also room for more. There's always room for more people at the table of the Lord. It's never full. It's always open to anyone and everyone who will come. This morning, as we prepare to come to the table of the Lord, I'd like to share one verse with you in closing. This is what I would invite you to leave with this morning. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 9 says this. My grace is enough. It's all you need. If you found yourself in the perpetual cycle of this madness of more, I want to speak to you this morning the words from your Lord and Savior who says, my grace represented at this table, my body broken for you, my blood shed for you, my grace is enough. It is all you need. Amen? Amen. Let's confess our sin and come to the table of the Lord this morning. Do you join me in making our confession?